This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Each week, government executives and thought leaders join me for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. The IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute to, in some form or fashion, changing the way government does business. Today we'll be discussing two different areas, advancing autonomous technology in healthcare and enhancing medical device design with the ultimate goal of improving productivity and safety. My first guest is Chin Ho Han, Assistant Professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. And my co-host today from IBM is Rick Strasser. Professor Han, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, uh, good, good. Thank you for uh, inviting. Great. And uh, Rick... Welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. So, uh, Professor, what is the mission and purpose of the Laboratory for Control and Information Systems at the University of Maryland? And would you briefly identify the current research endeavors at the lab? Oh, okay. So, um, the overarching mission of uh, my lab is to advance autonomy in healthcare. And in doing this, uh, we strive to establish a solid uh, mechanistic understanding of physiological uh, phenomena. Uh, based on rigorous mathematical modeling and system analysis. And uh, we translate the understanding thus gained into practically useful autonomy technologies and systems that can support the providers in delivering quality healthcare. Uh, In my mind, um, healthcare autonomy encompasses uh, three essential elements. Uh, First, sensing and instrumentation. Second, interpretation and diagnostics. And third, uh, intervention. And my lab has been working on a few research endeavors related to all these elements. Uh, Currently ongoing research projects include, uh, on the sensing side, uh, ultra-convenient cuffless blood pressure monitoring and uh, patient-specific automatic uh, oscillometric blood pressure measurement. And on the diagnostic side, non-invasive cardiovascular health monitoring, cardiovascular risk predictor assessment, and uh, cardiovascular disease detection. And on the intervention side, decision support technologies for circulatory resuscitation in critical care and autonomous closed-loop control of uh, critical care interventions, uh, such as fluid resuscitation, uh, blood transfusion, medication infusion, and mechanical ventilation. Mm-hmm. And one of those challenges, uh, you know, hypertension is a major a cardiovascular risk factor that is uh, treatable, yet um, undetected or uncontrolled. 
in many people in the U.S. and worldwide. To that end, what are you doing in the area of unobtrusive blood pressure monitoring? What goes into this in a, from a technical standpoint? Okay, so in the area of blood pressure monitoring, my lab has been closely involved in two research activities. Uh, first, uh, on obtrusive blood pressure monitoring based on the parameter called post-frenzy time. And second, patient-specific uh, oscillometric blood pressure measurement to improve the accuracy of automatic cough-based blood pressure measurement. And now talking about on obtrusive blood pressure monitoring based on post-frenzy time a little bit, I think I have to first talk about what the post-frenzy time is. Mm-hmm. And uh, the post-frenzy time is the time required for the blood pressure wave to travel between two arterial sites. And post-frenzy time uh, is known to decrease as the artery is stiffen. And because the artery is like a rubber tube, and uh, its stiffness increases with uh, blood pressure uh, based on its mechanical properties, post-frenzy time often shows an inverse relationship with blood pressure in individual subjects. Moreover, Post-frenzy time can be measured simply as the relative timing between proximal and distal uh, waveforms indicative of arterial pulsations. And for these reasons, post-frenzy time is being widely investigated at present to achieve uh, more convenient uh, cough-less blood pressure monitoring. Now, uh, most previous studies of blood pressure measurement via post-frenzy time have used the time delay between an electrocardiography, or ECG, and an arterial waveform from an arm, especially a finger blood volume waveform uh, based on photoplethysmography measurement, uh, which is called a post-arrival time, as a convenient surrogate of post-transit time. However, uh, the post-arrival time has two shortcomings. Uh, the first shortcoming is that post-arrival time includes the um, electrical time delay called uh, projection period, uh, which can change independently of post-transit time and can uh, weaken the correlation between post-transit time and blood pressure. The second shortcoming is that the post-transit time component of the post-arrival time represents the time delay through mainly small arteries, where smooth muscle contraction and relaxation can change arterial stiffness, and thus post-transit time, again, independently of blood pressure. And to uh, address these uh, significant shortcomings, we are investigating a novel approach to measure post-transit time, where we use the um, heartbeat-induced body movement, uh, known in the field as the ballistocardiogram, as the proximal timing reference for post-transit time measurement, as opposed to um, electrocardiogram. And uh, we are also using a scale platform to measure uh, foot arterial waveform as a distal timing reference for uh, post-transit time measurement. And in this way, uh, the adverse effect of the projection period uh, can be eliminated, and uh, post-transit time through the major aora uh, can be employed for blood pressure monitoring, which uh, helps to mitigate the adverse influence of the smooth muscle contraction in the arm. And um, a related work to this uh, is our research on uh, mechanistically understand the physiological basis underlying the ballistocardiogram. The ballistocardiogram is a mechanical manifestation of the heartbeat, but the physical meaning of the ballistocardiogram wave uh, has remained mysterious for more than a century. And uh, we recently discovered uh, the principal mechanism underlying the genesis of the ballistocardiogram and translated the understanding to identify the ballistocardiogram features that can be used as a proximal timing reference for post-rendered time measurement. 
It's fascinating stuff. I mean, um, uh, you know, who who have you collaborated with uh, pursuing this research? And you know, where I'm going, for, given given the nature of the show, I'd like to know, um, you know, healthcare being part of our focus, but also government. Um, have you worked with hospitals and or government agencies? And, and, and the last part of that question is, does the technology that underlies this innovation, is it transferable to other industries or disciplines? Okay. So um, this research uh, is currently being funded by the National Institute of Health. So it's NIH. Okay. Yeah, specifically the NIBIB, the National Institute of uh, Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. And uh, with this support, uh, we are conducting this research under the umbrella of a consortium comprising five institutions, uh, the Michigan State University as the lead institution, uh, and Maryland and Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, General Electric as the industrial partner, and uh, University of Rochester Medical Center. So uh, in this consortium, uh, the Michigan State University and University of Maryland uh, lead the algorithmic aspects of the research uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, the sensing and instrumentation aspects of the research, and um, General Electric is investigating new contactless blood pressure monitoring technologies, and the University of Rochester is responsible for conducting human subject studies to acquire experimental data to develop and validate unobtrusive blood pressure monitoring technologies being pursued in this project. And my lab has been collaborating closely with uh, Professor Lama Mukamala's group at the Michigan State University, on mathematical analysis of the uh, ballistocardiogram, and with uh, Professor Omar Inan's team at the uh, Georgia Institute of Technology on the um, sensing and instrumentation for the ballistocardiogram. And uh, related to your last question, uh, we are hoping that the technologies we are developing uh, within this project in order to enable ultra-convenient blood pressure monitoring can at some point in the future uh, become mature enough to be transferred to industry uh, to be commercialized and make tangible societal impacts. What are autonomous critical care systems and technologies? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can technology transform the way government does business? How can the federal government reduce costs and improve services by adapting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies? What are those specific cost reduction strategies? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Professor Han, I'd like to turn to autonomous critical care. Um, what are autonomous critical care systems and technologies, and what are some of the unique and significant challenges uh, you encounter in this research? So the 
Automated critical care systems are deployable decision support and closed-loop control systems, uh, perhaps in the form of uh, connected medical devices, which can monitor and sustain critically ill patients with minimal provider supervision. Uh, as a background, uh, critically ill patients require uh, resuscitation to sustain their circulation through the infusion of fluids and vasoactive drugs, and also stabilization to reduce pain through the infusion of sedative and opioid drugs. And in today's clinical practice, uh, this task is usually performed by human providers, uh, which is often subjective and non-optimal, and incurs uh, treatment delays due to lapses of vigilance and is also confounded by the variability in uh, how each patient responds to the same amount of drug that is infused. And the autonomous critical care systems may be a viable solution to guide and assist human providers uh, through a couple of things, including complete vigilance to monitor patients and um, careful and exacting computations to make objective clinical decisions. And my goals in this research are to develop closed-loop decision support and control algorithms for resuscitation and medication infusion, and also to investigate computational modeling of physiology as in silico testing tools for uh, such closed-loop technologies. And um, one challenge I encountered uh, in conducting this research is the lack of appropriate mathematical models amenable to the development of closed-loop algorithms. Taking the uh, fluid resuscitation and blood transfusion uh, for patients with hemorrhage uh, as an example, hemorrhage and uh, fluid blood infusion incurs uh, the shift of fluid in different parts of the body. This, uh, called in the field as a fluid shift, is an important phenomena that must be considered in designing closed-loop control systems to optimize uh, blood volume through fluid resuscitation and blood transfusion because uh, both uh, over and under resuscitation of the patient has adverse side effects. And mathematical models to reproduce how the blood volume response to hemorrhage and resuscitation exist. But the problem is that um, some are very simple empiric models that do not offer much physiological insights, whereas some other models are very complex, uh, involving um, as many as a few thousand parameters to tune. And since an ideal mathematical model for developing closed-loop algorithms must be equipped with both um, simplicity and interpretability, none of these models are appropriate for the purpose of developing closed-loop decision support and control algorithms. And in my effort to address this challenge, my lab has been investigating the uh, development of mathematical models of physiological processes uh, relevant to uh, automated critical care including fluid resuscitation and blood transfusion. You know, similarly to you know, autonomous cars, safety and performance of these technologies uh, is of an utmost importance because they can make a direct impact on people's lives, the quality of life and their life in general. But how do you ensure these technologies are safe? And perhaps you could give us a high-level overview of the validation and regulatory approval process. Okay, so... Um, first of all, uh, I'm not an expert in this area, so um, uh, my knowledge is rather limited, but let me um, give my answer to the best of my knowledge. So as far as I know, uh, there's probably um, not that many autonomous closed-loop controlled medical devices, uh, especially for critical care use, approved by the FDA. And 
this contrasts against the countries in Europe in which, uh, for example, automated anesthesia delivery technologies have been approved for clinical use already. And due to this reason, um, I don't know for sure if there is any standardized process to assess the safety and performance of autonomous critical care technologies in the United States. Uh, but that said, uh, new intervention technologies for human use are typically first tested in preclinical studies involving animals, and then in clinical trials involving real humans. And usually, this process takes a lot of time and cost, and presenting uh, challenges to the industry, especially uh, the startups and uh, small businesses. And to address this challenge, there is an increasing interest in, in silico testing of autonomous closed-loop controlled medical devices using high-fidelity computational models of physiological systems. And in general, there are two ways a computational model can be used for the purpose of in silico testing. The first way is to uh, simulate the autonomous closed-loop controlled medical device together with the computational model. And the second way is to perform formal stability analysis of the autonomous closed-loop controlled medical devices in conjunction with the computational model of the physiology. And note that um, the first way of simulating the autonomous closed-loop controlled medical devices is applicable to most closed-loop control technologies whereas the applicability of the second way may be limited to a subset of the technologies that lend themselves to formal mathematical analysis, um, such as uh, those analysis techniques established in the field of control systems theory. However, the strength of the second way is that it often gives us uh, solid mathematical guarantees on safety, stability, and performance. And uh, in the end, I think uh, both approaches have to be pursued uh, to come up with a um, standardized way of uh, evaluating um, autonomous critical care technologies with uh, in silico evaluation. How do you strive to establish solid understanding of physiological systems and processes, translating these understanding and mathematical models into practically useful technologies for health? All right. So, again, our primary approach uh, is to develop a mathematical model of the physiological system or process of interest, which is uh, interpretable uh, but not too complex, and analyze the model thus obtained to garner useful insights that can be translated into practical useful technologies, or employ the model as the basis for the development of closed-loop decision support and control algorithms. And I think one good example is my recent research on the heartbeat-induced body movement, or the ballistocardiogram. So let me give you that example. The ballistocardiogram, uh, the heartbeat-induced body movement, is closely related to uh, cardiovascular performance because it represents the recoil of the body to cardiac dispersion of blood into the arteries. In addition, it can be measured with uh, increasing convenience at a variety of locations on the body. And uh, for these two reasons, the ballistocardiogram has great potential to enable convenient cardiovascular health monitoring and cardiovascular risk predictors tracking. However, the use of ballistocardiogram for cardiovascular health monitoring and cardiovascular risk predictors tracking has been hampered by the serious lack of mechanistic understanding of the ballistocardiogram and its relationship to blood pressure and cardiovascular risk. Consequently, 
Virtually all the prior efforts on ballistocardiogram-based cardiovascular health monitoring have resulted to a brute force correlation of easily identifiable features in the ballistocardiogram to cardiovascular health and risk parameters of interest. And as a result, many prior clinical efforts to utilize the ballistocardiogram for cardiovascular health monitoring have resulted in a very limited, limited success. And to address this challenge, uh, we developed an insightful mathematical model and showed that the ballistocardiogram is generated by the interaction of the blood pressure waves in the aora. And such a systematic insight could guide us in, for example, identifying the features in the ballistocardiogram that must be used to infer some specific cardiovascular health and risk parameters. Uh, as an example, in our recent work, uh, which is yet to be disseminated, uh, we showed that features in the ballistocardiogram we identified to predict diastolic and systolic blood pressure, again, as guided by the mechanistic understanding of the ballistocardiogram that we obtained from our mathematical model, were indeed able to predict uh, diastolic and systolic blood pressures. And we expect that further mathematical study of the ballistocardiogram will basically open up new opportunities to develop convenient cardiovascular health monitoring technologies based on the ballistocardiogram. And of course, uh, we acknowledge that uh, this uh, kind of uh, first principles approach is not always feasible. And in those cases, uh, we also have to consider uh, less physics-based and data-driven approaches, such as data mining techniques. Next up, enhancing medical device design, when this edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. I'd like to welcome my next guest, Manifa Von Cook, Assistant Professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. And once again, my co-host today from IBM is Rick Strasser. Professor Von Cook, uh, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Great. Uh, Rick, welcome. Welcome back. Thanks, Michael. All right. So, uh, Professor, would you describe or uh, give us a sense of what uh, your research area, your areas of interests are, and what is your background, and what prompted your interest in your research area? 
So my background um, has kind of hopped around a bit through a variety of different interdisciplinary fields. So I started out uh, wanting to be a doctor, specifically wanting to be a psychiatrist. I had this great interest in the human mind uh, and, and how humans function, which has been an interest of mine since childhood. Um, went into a program in biomedical engineering uh, in undergrad and very soon found out that I was performing better in the engineering side of things than in the science side of things. So the decision was kind of made for me that I'm going to go ahead and go on to graduate school in engineering as opposed to medicine. Um, But my interest in psychiatry and the human mind still continued. At that time, I didn't really know how to transition it with engineering, but then I found out about this field called human factors engineering, which basically studies how humans interact with technology and other systems and tries to optimize those systems for the human user. So that that is kind of how the transition occurred. And still with my interest in medicine, that naturally went into human-centered design for medical devices. And so over time, I started to focus a bit more on what would be considered high-risk or vulnerable populations within the medical device user group. And chronic disease patients, which some people who actually are chronic disease patients like diabetes and and high blood pressure patients, they know this, approximately 90% of their care is based on them doing their care at home outside of the direct supervision of their provider. This care is actually facilitated by devices, most of which are poorly designed. <laughs> so, so think about a glucometer mm-hmm. or, or what would be considered a, a blood sugar meter or, or a blood pressure monitor. These are actually considered to be highly unusable by individuals who might be low-tech competent, mm-hmm. which if we think of, you know, I could think of my grandmother trying to use a cell phone, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, really. <laughs> And that goes into user, you know, user uh, variability. Am I correct in saying that? Right, right. Well, so, what is that actually? If you could, so if if we think of just humans in general, we're we're quite heterogeneous. Yes. So we have lots of different characteristics. Those characteristics actually impact how we'll interact with technology. So the same thing goes for patients who interact with technology. So you have a wide range of ages. You have a wide range of technological competency. You have a wide range of what's called health literacy or the ability to understand and apply health information. And actually, chronic disease patients, statistically speaking, tend to be on the lower scale of health literacy and tech competence. But in fact, these devices tend to be a lot more complex than other consumer-based products. So you have a problem. You have these devices, which are being used predominantly for the care of these diseases. They're highly unusable by individuals who are considered high risk based on these characteristics. And now we have this epidemic uh, in this country with, with kind of diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension, leading the charge uh, among those those epidemics. And so um, my particular work looks at identifying what those characteristics are, statistically uh, identifying them through empirical research, and then applying that to designing specific components of those devices, uh, and, and then going back and testing and, and validating those design principles that were applied to the design mm-hmm. in the actual population uh, that was the focus of the device use. In that design, um, what do you see as uh, problems with maybe a one-size-fits-all uh, methodology for those consumer products? You talked about the heterogeneous nature of, of humans and especially this population. So, 
Right. So typically in consumer products, you might have one one model designed um, for a lot of different industries. Let's say the automotive industry, each uh, car might be assigned to what's what's called a persona, um, mm-hmm. which are, are socio-behavioral characteristics that a particular group might have. So each car has one persona. Um, in fact, uh, the way many of these consumer industries work is, is, is in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you move to an industry like healthcare with medical devices that are patient-facing, meaning the, mm-hmm. the patient is responsible for interacting with them instead of the doctor. And that methodology doesn't quite transfer because typically you just have the one product that the manufacturer is making. Um, you may have a cheaper alternative, which might be their quote-unquote budget uh, product, which might be a scaled-down product with less features. But in fact, there's not a lot of customization that, that occurs. And, and so that becomes quite problematic uh, with, with patients either uh, not using the products properly, which could then lead to uh, faulty diagnoses or applying wrong information to change their habits, such as medication or food, et cetera. Or it could just lead to, to what's called non-adherence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just not going to use it. it. It's too too much, exactly, too much trouble. You know, so if you could tell us how you conduct your research, and, and more importantly, when you're conducting your research, uh, writing a, a paper, grants, what have you, what challenges are you aiming to address with your research? Right. So so the first stage, I would say, of the research is actually what we call requirement solicitation. So in the field of engineering, that's going out and, and determining what your specifications are that might be needed to, for example, design something. So in the case of human factors engineering, we're looking at uh, the specifications related to the user. OK, so um, we want to understand the specific characteristics uh, that are related to their interaction with product components. So let's take a basic product like like a glucometer used to measure blood sugar. You have a screen, you have casings, you have a button, you have text that has to be shown on the screen. Um, you have a strip, which you put the blood on and then put in, in into the meter. So you have these various components that the user has to interact with. Uh, so the first step would actually be determining what specific characteristics like vision, mobility, uh, fun- functional mobility characteristics. You want to understand their level of health literacy, their level of technological competence. These are all of the characteristics that you would want to quantify empirically in the population before actually starting on the design process. Uh, the next step would then be determining what what components of that, that product uh, would be the best fit. So um, a few years ago, we did a study looking at um, the ability of diabetes patients to uh, recognize and interpret information that's presented on a screen. Um, something that a lot of people don't know is that the majority of diabetes patients actually have eye conditions, which significantly limit their ability to read text, um, which maybe for those of us who, who have better vision, we take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like diabetic retinopathy, cataracts, glaucoma, these are actually present in the majority of patients. And so text that might be presented on these really tiny devices, some of which are smaller than the palm of your hand, that's quite troublesome. Uh, and so we looked at simulating these diseases in the healthy population 
with uh, with cataracts and, and glaucoma and and diabetic retinopathy glasses uh, to actually test patient satisfaction with a variety of consumer brand models uh, and use that as as a preliminary usability analysis to understand how these particular diseases were impacting uh, interaction with the with, with this particular product component. That's a, a great example uh, of a specific persona um, using a glucometer. And how do you go about defining the user characteristics that end up um, impacting product interaction? So, so that's a good question, and and probably one of the most important ones we have to ask in designing uh, a product. A lot of the available information that's out there that we have on users that, that might be in databases, for example, is not going to give you a lot of the key information. For example, you're not going to find their level of health literacy in, in a database, even in their medical files. That's not something, that's not part of the, the package of surveys you get when you go to your clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to find information on technological competence. So a, a lot of this information has been collected over time in independent studies that have looked at human interaction with technology. Um, what, what we do is compile all of that information as well as additional information that we'll gather from our interaction with, with patients to, t- to try to tie them to specific survey measures or other tools that could be used to elicit that information. So we might be tying it to subjective tools, meaning they're self-reported measures of something, or we may actually tie it to uh, more objective measures. For example, we know that income is highly correlated with measures like health literacy and tech competence. So if we're able to get that information or even uh, what type of insurance a patient has, those can, can be used as indirect measures of some of the other um, measures that we want to seek. So, uh, Professor, how does your research, um, and you kind of alluded to it initially, but how does your research inform concept generation and the usability testing of, say, design alternatives? Right. So, a lot of times, uh, if we follow a a traditional design process, uh, humans don't actually get to interact with the product or provide feedback on their satisfaction with the product until much later, until you have what's called a physical prototype or or something, uh, a storyboard or some mock-up of a product. But of course, that's that's a bit later in the design process. What what we do is we integrate um, in in what's known as a participatory design process, um, much earlier, actually, at the first stage of the design. This may actually start out by taking products that are commercially available and assessing those and using those to develop an initial set of user characteristics and design characteristics that might be particularly relevant for this population. Uh, And then that will serve as the baseline to actually move forward and to start generating concepts which would be the, the initial stage, which then might be followed by some storyboarding, some, some 2D mock-ups, and then we may move on to 3D mock-ups, um, which may be done in the physical prototype stage. And, and we also use virtual reality uh, a lot to do mock-up testing. What is patient-centered design? We'll explore these questions and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
How can technology transform the way government does business? How can the federal government reduce costs and improve services by adapting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies? What are those specific cost reduction strategies? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. So, Professor, treating addiction and mental illness is a major challenge for healthcare providers. I was wondering um, if you could tell us more about your research in the area of virtual reality in behavioral therapy. How does it actually work, and how are you integrating VR into the advances in mobile health technologies? So similar to um, what I was just discussing in the glucometers and the blood pressure monitors, those are mobile devices. Many of them are not fully wired, uh, meaning that they're transmitting information, but a lot of trends are now happening in consumer and technologies across many industries to try to improve accessibility and mobility for the end user, who in this case might be the patient. Um, now, there's, of course, a lot of issues uh, that are present when you take care that traditionally happens inside of the context of a hospital or in a clinic or some physical healthcare location, and then the patient travels home. That, that continuum of care is many times broken. And that's when you have issues with non-adherence, remission in the case of mental health and substance abuse, and many other negative factors. Um, So mobile health actually has a lot of great benefits for improving that continuum of care and sustaining that continuum of care. So many of the advances that are now being made in the development of software apps have been in um, trying to improve communication. Uh, between the healthcare provider and the patient after they leave uh, the the physical location of a hospital or or a clinic. Uh, Another way that mobile health is being used is to actually supplement um, the information that might be provided uh, by an individual who's providing them their care. So in the cases of mental health and substance abuse, there's a lot of apps that they're developing now to help with, for example, PTSD, when patients may feel triggers. The app may suggest helpful strategies. This is an example of a way that that continuum of care uh, is is being addressed. Now, the way that I am implementing it uh, is taking specific chronic diseases similar to diabetes and hypertension uh, and looking at how you might take traditional activities that happen in the healthcare setting and translate them to a software tool. So we thought about um, different mental health diseases where this might be particularly applicable um, as, a, as, as a baseline. Um, we, we're looking at tobacco cessation. 
um, which of course is something that many people struggle with, uh, effective strategies to quit smoking, to sustain that behavior, uh, motivational strategies, et cetera. So um, one of the tools that is used for behavioral interventions is group therapy. So typically patients may return to a clinical setting uh, periodically to um, to talk with a therapist and maybe others who are going through the same challenges. So we thought about how can we take this uh, this activity and translate it into a mobile setting. Mm-hmm. So of course, if you think about that, there's there's quite a lot of challenges there, right? You're you're talking with real people, um, and and something that. Uh, that happens when you talk with with live human people is that they have a um, a, a response. There, there's kind of a feedback loop. So you provide some input. There's a response, maybe even a modification of what their p- plan response is based on what you say. Now, of course, if you're talking with uh, your cell phone or a computer, uh, that modification of response and adapting to your behavior. Uh, that's quite challenging. Um, so we we looked at how to actually implement that in in virtual reality while taking avatars that that might actually replicate to the best extent possible real human interaction. So in addition to adapting to behavior, there's also the notion that that avatars are are quite robotic, and and that could potentially impact the behavioral uh, response of the patient who's looking to to seek some comfort in, in interacting with the avatars. So in implementing a group therapy simulation in, in virtual reality, we use a variety of different motion capture techniques to uh, make the avatar's movements more realistic, more, more believable, less robotic. That includes um, facial movements, um, expressions we took, uh, smoker stories from the CDC website and actually took motion capture of the faces of, of actual smokers and used that to design the facial expressions of the avatars while they were communicating the same stories as the um, as, as those that were provided on, on the CDC uh, smoker experiences uh, forum. And that has, uh, ha- has provided a bit more realism in terms of avatar movements. Now, in terms of the behavioral uh, integration and that feedback loop, uh, we're also using tools like EEG mm-hmm. and pupillometry to have a feedback loop of what the uh, user is experiencing to actually trigger different scripts that might be related to personas that that individual is assigned to. Um, so we talked about these personas uh, previously in the context of the design of glucometers um, and, and the fact that there may be multiple personas in, instead of this one-size-fits-all. So the same concept applies here. You can have multiple individuals who might be in this group therapy session, each may be representing a persona where that persona might be more able to communicate information that would have an emotional response and trigger emotional stimuli in the patient. How do you feel this this research is transferable uh, to other industries or disciplines? Well, there's a lot of um, go, going back to the discussion of, of glucometers and blood pressure monitors and and um, delivering user centered consumer products, um, particularly in in the field of healthcare. There's a lot of uh, regulatory uh, mechanisms that are 
particularly pertinent to this. In 2009, the Food and Drug Administration made usability testing part of their approval process. So now medical device manufacturers who are going through the 510K process or the pre-market approval process, they apply with discretion this requirement to have their devices tested in a what's called formative and summative usability testing. So initial testing and then some concluding testing to validate the device. Now, how this has an impact on what we're talking about is that we're saying that users are highly variable. Therefore, if you're going to approve a device, and and part of that approval for commercialization and distribution is that you meet the needs of the human user, it would make sense that a representative population would be including would be included in the usability studies that are submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for approval of that device. That seems to make sense, right? If these are your users, include those individuals in your test. And if you can satisfy these requirements saying that it is usable, then you can get approval. Uh, The issue is that many of these high-risk users are not actually enrolling in the studies that are being submitted for approval. In particular, the patients who are lower socioeconomic status, um, who in historically in clinical studies have had issues with enrollment, representation in pharmaceutical-based clinical studies, and, and the list goes on and on. That translates over to usability studies of, of devices. So we have this issue of patients who are considered healthy healthy patients, quote-unquote, actually being participating in these studies. So patients who um, may not have significant mobility or eye diseases, patients who may have lower health literacy, higher tech competence, the lower-risk patients who are actually becoming the majority in these studies, and the the actual majority uh, of the population out there is the minority in the studies. And so um, that's problematic because that's how we get products out on the market that do not meet the needs of the end user. Uh, and I think that problem is has been recognized and acknowledged. Um, we uh, had funding from the, the FDA to address this variability and to start developing personas, empirically driven personas that define how chronic disease patients interact with technology. So in a in an optimal world, there would be a database that manufacturers can go to and it would have a list of all of the subpopulations that are relevant to their particular product based on market consumer information that they've gathered on their existing suite of products. They then go to this database and it would tell them what specific factors like health literacy or tech competence um, might be relevant for the patient interacting with their product. And then it would tell them specifications for the product for each specific component that would help the manufacturer meet the needs of that population. That would be great. That's, of course, quite a, a daunting task to develop such a repository. But we sought out to take a small chunk of that long-term vision that I have for, for developing this comprehensive guidance for manufacturers and, and focus that on diabetes patients and specifically on personal health records, which is a software tool that that patients use to manage their health information, billing, appointments, 
and and some even provide uh, options to upload data from devices. And so it's a problem that's being recognized, but it's also a problem that is being funded by federal agencies and their solutions that they're soliciting to to help to resolve this issue. You, know, you mentioned in, in the federal agencies, you mentioned FDA. Um, are there any, in terms of your research, as opposed to the regulatory, addressing regulatory issues and, and creating more effective process, is there any other government agency you're working with, like uh, within the health area itself with some of the work you're doing, VA or, you know, uh, anybody like that? Well, not specifically in the health industry. I do work with a lot of medical device manufacturers, um, specifically those who are submitting their devices to the FDA for approval, going through the 510K process, um, who have specific requirements to address patient variability in their usability testing. That's a bit of a complicated, oh, co- complicated like task complicated. for a manufacturer to take on. Um, particularly if they don't have the expertise in in house, um, and so so I do work with a lot of medical device manufacturers on that. But on the the federal side, um, there's other agencies that I work with that are seeking to identify user variability for the design of products in a very similar way mm-hmm. as we've done here for um, for the mobile healthcare platforms. Um, for example, we have funding from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to identify um, looking at the design of control rooms, um, okay. specifically um, panels that the user might interact with and how human variability might impact human performance, specifically in responding to signals, which in the case of a semi-autonomous system, you basically sit and watch a machine do, do its job, which um, sounds like that would be great in terms of not making mistakes. But <laughs> but in fact, it's quite complicated, in, in, uh, as we've seen in accidents like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, which um, were both found to be due to human error as, as one of the um, issues that propagated that risk through the system. Um, we also have funding from from Navair um, to do similar work in control rooms. Again, looking at how variability and operators might impact their performance, specifically looking at their human characteristics when they're interacting with control rooms uh, related to UAV control. Um, and and so this issue, I think. Um, the, the core, the, the fundamental issue is uh, humans, humans vary. How do you capture that variability? And then how do you use that to better design components um, and maybe even have those designs uh, adapt themselves uh, in real time to accommodate the needs of, of the user? I'd like to switch gears a bit, mm-hmm. and that would go into uh, what are um, patient self-management technologies and how can these technologies empower patients to actively participate in their chronic disease management and care? So patient self-management technologies are pretty much anything that the patient uses to perform diagnostics on themselves that will reveal information about the progress of their condition. So these include um, glucometers, um, blood pressure monitors, um, for example, asthma uh, inhalers, um, anything that might be used to manage a condition outside of the direct supervision of a provider. Um, And as we know with chronic diseases, the primary amount of care is done by the patient at home. And speaking of that, um, can you describe what you would consider patient-centric design? 
and, and how that plays a role in those kinds of devices? So patient-centric design means that we, uh, we want to understand the characteristics of the, the patient that influence how they interact with the technology. We want to understand the environment that they're interacting with the technology within. And we want to understand any other factors that might influence their performance when they use the technology. Things like how they might interpret the information, how they might use that to then modify their behavior, how that device might then facilitate communication between the healthcare provider and the patient. These are all included in this this notion of patient-centered design. Um, The focus is on improving outcomes of the patient, uh, which in this case would be um, specific clinical markers that would show you how the patient is improving over time. Um, For example, with diabetes patients, typically they use hemoglobin A1C. They track that over time. So if a patient is getting uh, accurate information, is following recommendations on how often they should use their self-management tool, which in this case would be a glucometer, then the assumption is that they would be able to use that information effectively to modify their diet and um, to have conversations with their provider maybe about updating their medication, uh, their prescriptions, and that this would then lead to improved outcomes and better quality of life. Now, of course, that's not always what happens. In in fact, in most cases, that's not what happens. But if the technology is designed in a way to to best facilitate that, it can actually serve as a uh, facilitator as opposed to something that hinders this process. You know, it's almost 20 years old now, and it's the publication by the Institute of Medicine to Air is Human. Um, the subject is medical errors. And I'd like you to define for us what that is in the healthcare context. And more importantly, how does your research seek to address, mitigate, or eliminate medical errors? I'll start out first by mentioning human errors, right? Because medical errors it, it came along many decades after people started using the term human error, which is a very controversial term because people assume that it implies that the human, um, the person who's at the end of the chain after a long series of actions, are at fault. Mm-hmm. And there's a notion of blame and train, meaning that whoever that individual is, if you're talking about technology interaction, it would be the operator. So if something bad happens, you take the operator and you you blame them, which might lead to firing, or you train them, and that should solve the problem. The issue is that doesn't actually get to the root of the problem, and so you typically have these, these issues reoccurring. Um, and so these, these concepts of human error spawn from accidents like Three Mile Island, where we had a whole field of study arise out of this called human reliability analysis. And so although the term carried a bit of stigma, it has... Uh, gone into other domains like healthcare where we see this this IOM report uh, to Eris Human um, with this notion of medical error, which very similar to its its predecessor terms uh, relate to accidents or, or adverse events which are completely avoidable. And in this case, the, the operator that I previously referred to would be, mm-hmm. let's say, a surgeon um, or a patient or, or someone who is at the end of a very long chain of actions. Uh, and, and so, again, the same issue arises. Do you, um, do you fire 
fire the surgeon? Um, do you just get the patient better training or do you really look at the core of the issue, which might be related to protocols um, or, or regulatory um, issues or in the case of human device interaction, actually looking at the design of the product uh, and looking at how the issues related to interaction could have been mitigated much early uh, in the requirements elicitation for user characteristics or in the design iterations and prototyping and testing that product. Um, so instead of blaming the user for making a mistake or misinterpreting information or forgetting to do something, you look at what procedures, what design process might have actually led to that. And that's really the definition of finding the root cause. How can modeling human error be a useful approach to assess the safety risks in healthcare systems? So, um, as I mentioned, it's it's really complex to look at uh, a, a large system where you might have lots of technology, lots of stakeholders, policies, procedures involved. Um, so when you look at human error um, and you're trying to approach it from this uh, philosophy of finding the root cause, uh, you want to have something to model that complexity. So specifically human error, you want to look at what are the um, performance shaping factors or the, the particular causal factors that might have led to um, that, that incident or incidents like that occurring. You also want to classify how uh, the human might fail or how that behavior might manifest. Um, so if you think about um, different ways that uh, events occur, um, so as humans, um, sometimes we do things through automatic processing. So if you think about leaving your house and uh, did I forget to lock the door, um, that's an automatic processing action. We do that so often that we don't even remember actually performing the action and we have to think about that versus something that has a much higher level of cognitive burden like decision making where we actually have to access rules and knowledge and problem solve. So if we understand how that error manifested, we actually would apply different risk mitigation strategies to something that involved automatic or subconscious processing versus something that involved more conscious problem solving. So uh, whereas a, a memory trigger might be appropriate for an automatic processing risk mitigation, um, you actually might have to dig a bit deeper into the decision-making process. Uh, when you're trying to to access someone's rules mm -hmm. that they're generating to actually come to some conclusion that they then use to act um, on information. That's fascinating. This has been a great conversation, a lot of insight. So um, Rick and I would like to thank you, uh, Professor, for being our guest today. Thank you. Uh, this has been great. I have a question. Is there any, if folks are interested to learn more about your research, um, how would they get in touch with you? And is there a website that they can... Right. Um, you can visit my lab's website, hsis.lab at umd.edu. That stands for Hybrid System Integration and Simulation. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. 
Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.